Section 17 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Rose. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 2. Great Navigators of the 18th Century by Jules Verne. First Part. Chapter 4, Part 1. Captain Cook's Second Voyage, 1C. Cook directed his course to Huaheen Island, which was only 25 leagues distant, and anchored there at 3 in the morning. The natives brought quantities of large fowls, which were the more acceptable, as it had been impossible to obtain any at Tahiti. Pigs, dogs, and fruit were in the market, and were exchanged for hatchets, nails, and glassware. This island, like Tahiti, showed traces of earlier volcanic eruptions, and the summit of one of its hills that resembled a crater. The appearance of the country is similar to that of Tahiti, but is on a smaller scale, for Huahin is only seven or eight leagues in circumference. Cook went to see his old friend Orea. The king, dispensing with all ceremony, threw himself on the captain's neck and shed tears of joy. Then he presented him to his friends, to whom the captain gave presents. The king offered Cook all his most precious possessions, for he looked upon this man as a father. Orea promised to supply the English with all they needed, and most loyally kept his word. However, on the morning of the 6th, the sailors who presided over the traffic were insulted by a native covered with red, in war dress and holding a club, who threatened everyone. Cook, landing at this moment, threw himself on the native, struggled with him, and finally possessed himself of the weapon which he broke. The same day another incident occurred. Sparman had imprudently penetrated to the interior of the island to make botanical researches. Some natives, taking advantage of the moment when he was examining a plant, snatched a dagger, which was the only weapon he carried, from his belt, gave him a blow on the head, and rushing upon him tore some of his clothes. Sparman, however, managed to rise and run toward the shore, but, hampered by the bushes and briars, he was captured by the natives, who cut his hands to possess themselves of his shirt, the sleeves of which were buttoned, until he tore the wristbands with his teeth. Others of the natives, seeing him naked and half dead, gave him their clothes, and conducted him to the marketplace, where there was a crowd assembled. When Sparman appeared in this plight, they all took flight without waiting to be told. Cook at first thought they intended to commit a theft. Undeceived by the appearance of the naturalist, he recalled the other natives, assured them that he would not revenge it upon the innocent, and carried his complaint straight to Aurea. The latter, miserable and furious at what had occurred, loaded his people with vehement reproaches, and promised to do all in his power to find out the robbers and the stolen things. In spite of the prayers of the natives, the king embarked in the captain's vessel, and entered upon a search for the culprits with him. The latter had removed their clothes, and for a while it was impossible to recognize them. Aurea, therefore, accompanied Cook on board, dined with him, and on his return to land was received by his people, who had not expected his return, with lively expressions of joy. One of the most agreeable reflections suggested by this voyage, says Forster, 
is that instead of finding the inhabitants of this island plunged in voluptuousness, as had been falsely affirmed by earlier navigators, we remark the most humane and delicate sentiments among them. There are vicious characters in every society, but we could count fifty more sinners in England or any other civilized country than in these islands. As the vessels were putting off, Aurea came to announce that the robbers were taken, and to invite Cook to land and assist in their punishment. It was impossible. The king accompanied Cook half a league on his way, and left him with friendly farewells. This stay in port had been very productive. The two vessels brought away more than three hundred pigs, and quantities of fowl and fruits. Probably they would not have procured much more, even had their stay been prolonged. Captain Furneaux had agreed to take a young man named Omai on board. His conduct and intelligence gave a favorable idea of the inhabitants of the Society Islands. Upon his arrival in England, this Tahitian was presented to the king by Earl Sandwich, first lord of the admiralty. At the same time he found protectors and friends in Banks and Solander. They arranged a friendly reception for him among the first families of Great Britain. He lived two years in this country, and upon Cook's third voyage he accompanied him and returned to his native land. The captain afterwards visited Ulitea, where the natives gave him the most appreciative welcome. They inquired with interest about Tupia and the English they had seen in the endeavor. King Oreo hastened to renew his acquaintance with the captain and gave him all the provisions his island produced. During their stay, Poreo, who had embarked in the resolution, landed with a young Tahitan girl, who had enchanted him, and would not return on board. He was replaced by a young man of seventeen or eighteen years of age, a native of Bola Bola, named Oedidi, who announced his wish to go to England. The grief evinced by this native on leaving his native land spoke well for his good heart. The vessels, laden with more than four hundred pigs, and also with fowls and fruit, left the Society Islands on the 17th of September and steered for the west. Six days later, one of the Harvey Islands was sighted, and on the 1st of October, anchor was cast off Eoa, called Middleburg Island by Tasman and Cook. The welcome by the natives was cordial. A chief named Tai Wan came on board, touched the captain's nose with a pinch of pepper, and sat down without speaking. The alliance was concluded and ratified by the gift of a few trifles. Taiwan guided the English into the interior. The newcomers were surrounded by a dense crowd of natives, offering stuffs and mats in exchange for nails as long as the walk lasted. The natives often even carried their liberality so far as to decline any return for these presents. Taiwan conducted his new friends to his dwelling agreeably situated in a beautiful valley in the shade of some sad hex. He served them with a liquor extracted from the juice of the ayava, the use of which is common to the Polynesian islanders. It was prepared in the following manner. Pieces of a root, a species of pepper, were first chewed and then placed in a large wooden vase over which water was poured. As soon as this liquor was drinkable, the natives poured it out into cups made of green leaves, shaped into form, and holding about half a pint. Cook was the only one who tasted it. 
The method of preparing the liquor had quenched the thirst of his companion, but the natives were not fastidious, and the vase was soon emptied. The English afterwards visited several plantations or gardens separated by intertwined hedges, which were connected by doors formed of planks and hung upon hinges. The perfection of culture and the fully developed instinct of property showed a degree of civilization superior to that of Tahiti. In spite of the reception he met with, Cook, who could procure neither pigs nor fowls, left this island to reach that of Amsterdam, called Tanga Tabo by the natives. Here he hoped to find the provisions he needed. The vessel soon anchored in the roadstead of Van Diemen, in eighteen fathoms of water, a cable's length from the breakers which border the shore. The natives were friendly and brought stuffs, mats, implements, arms, ornaments, and soon afterwards pigs and fowls. Oedidi bought some red feathers of them with much delight, declaring they would have a high value at Tahiti. Cook landed with a native named Atago, who had attached himself to him at once. During his excursion, he remarked a temple similar to a marae, which was called by the generic name of Phytoka. Raised upon an artificial butt, 16 or 18 feet from the ground, the temple was in an oblong form and was reached by two stone staircases. Built like the homes of the natives, with posts and joists, it was covered with palm leaves. Two wooden images coarsely carved two feet in length occupied the corners. As I did not wish to offend either them or their gods, says the captain, I dared not touch them, but I inquired of Otago if these were Etuas or gods. I do not know if he understood me, but he instantly handled them and turned them over as roughly as if he had merely touched a bit of wood, which convinced me that they did not represent a divine being. A few thefts were perpetrated, but they did not interrupt cordiality, and a quantity of provisions were procured. Before leaving, the captain had an interview with a person who was treated with extraordinary respect to whom all the natives accorded the rank of king. Cook says, I found him seated with a gravity of deportment so stupid and so dull that in spite of all they had told me, I took him for an idiot whom the people adored from superstitious motives. I saluted him and talked to him, but he made no reply and paid no attention to me. I was about to leave him when a native made me understand that it was without doubt the king. I offered him a shirt, a hatchet, a piece of red stuff, a looking-glass, some nails, metals, and glassware. He received them, or rather allowed them to be placed upon his person or beside him, losing nothing of his gravity, and speaking no word, not even moving his head to the right or left. However, next day this chief sent baskets of bananas and a roast pig, saying that it was a present from the Ariki of the island to the Ariki of the ship. Cook called this archipelago the Friendly Islands. They had formerly received various names from Shuton and Tasman as Coconut Islands, Traitor Islands, Hope Islands, and Horn Islands. Cook, not having been able to obtain fresh water, was obliged to leave Tonga sooner than he wished. He found time, however, to make a few observations as to the productions of the country and the manners of the natives. 
we will mention the most striking. Nature had showered its treasures with a liberal hand upon Tonga and the Oa Islands. Cocoa nuts, palm trees, breadfruit trees, yams, and sugar canes are most plentiful there. As for edible animals, pigs and fowls alone were met with, but dogs, if not existing there, are known by name. The most delicate fish abounds on the coast. Of much the same form as Europeans, and equally white, the inhabitants of these islands are well proportioned and of pleasant features. Their hair is originally black, but they are in the habit of tinting it with powder, so that white, red, and blue hair abounds, which produces a singular effect. Tattooing is a universal practice. Their clothes are very simple, consisting of one piece of stuff rolled around the waist and falling to the knees. The women, who at Tonga, as everywhere else, are more coquettish than men, make aprons of coconut fibers, which they ornament with shells and bits of colored stuffs and feathers. The natives had some singular customs, which the English had not noticed before. Thus they put everything that is given them on their heads, and conclude a bargain with this practice. When a friend or relation dies, they slash their limbs, and even some of their fingers. Their dwellings are not collected in villages, but are separate, and dispersed among the plantations. Built in the same style as those of the Society Islands, they differ from them only in being raised higher above the ground. The adventure and resolution sailed on the 7th of October, and the following day reconnoitred Pilestart Island, discovered by Tasman. On the 21st, anchor was cast in Hawke's Bay, New Zealand. Cook landed a certain number of animals, which he wished to acclimatize, and set sail again to enter Queen Charlotte's Sound, but being caught in a great gale, he was separated from the adventure, and did not meet her again until he reached England. On the 5th of November, the captain repaired the damages of his vessel, and before undertaking a new voyage in the southern seas, he wished to ascertain the extent and quality of his provisions. He reckoned that 4,500 pounds of biscuits had been entirely spoiled, and that more than 3,000 pounds were in scarcely better condition. During his stay here, he obtained a new and still more convincing proof of the cannibalism of the natives of New Zealand. An officer had brought the head of a young man, who had been killed and eaten, and some natives seeing it wished very much for a piece. Cook gave it to them, and the avidity with which they threw themselves upon this revolting food proved the pleasure that these cannibals took in eating food which they have difficulty in procuring. The resolution left New Zealand on the 26th of November, and entered the glacial regions which she had already traversed. But the circumstances attending her second voyage were distressing. The crew, though in good health, were overcome by fatigue and less capable of resisting illness, the more so that they had no fresh food on board. The resolution had lost her consort, and the world was convinced that no Antarctic continent existed. It was, so to say, a platonic voyage. It was necessary to prove beyond the possibility of doubt that no new land of any importance was to be discovered in these latitudes. The first ice was encountered on the 12th of December, and farther to the south than in the preceding year. 
From this date, the usual incidents of navigation in these latitudes were repeated day by day. Oididi was quite astonished by the white rain, as he called the snow which fell on his hand, but the sight of the first ice was still a greater marvel to him. He called it white earth. His mind had been struck by a phenomenon in the torrid zone, says the narrative. As long as the ships remained in these latitudes, we had scarcely any night, and he had seen that we could write at midnight by the light of the sun. Oyidi could scarcely believe his eyes, and he assured us that his fellow countrymen would put him down as a liar if he talked to them of petrified rain and a perpetual day. The young Tahitan had time to become accustomed to this phenomenon, for the ship advanced as far as 76 degrees south amidst floating ice. Then, convinced that if a continent existed, the ice made access to it impossible, Cook determined to proceed to the north. General dissatisfaction prevailed. No one on board was free from severe colds or from an attack of scurvy. The captain himself was seriously affected by bilious sickness, which kept him in bed. For eight days his life was in danger, and his recovery was likely to be equally painful and slow. The same route was followed until the 11th of March, when with the rising of the sun the joyful cry of land, land, arose. It was the Easter Island of Rojewine's Davis Land. Upon nearing it, the navigators were struck with astonishment, as the Dutch had been, by the enormous statues erected on the shore. Cook says that the latitude of Easter Island answers very closely to that marked in Rojewine's manuscript journal, and its longitude is only one degree wrong. The shore, composed of black broken rock of ferruginous appearance, shows traces of violent subterranean eruption. A few scattered plantations were perceived in the center of the island. Singular coincidence! The first word spoken by the natives as the strangers approached the shore was to ask in the Tahitan tongue for a rope. This again suggested that the origin of both races was the same. Like the Tahitans, they were tattooed and clothed in stuff similar to those of the Society Islands. The action of the sun on their heads, says the narrative, has forced them to find different means for protecting themselves. The greater number of men wear a circular head covering about two inches thick, twisted with grass from one side to the other, and covered with a great quantity of those long black feathers which adorn the frigate bird. Others have enormous hats of brown gull's feathers, almost as large as the wigs of European lawyers, and many have a simple wooden hoop surrounded with white gull's feathers, which wave in the air. The women wear large and wide hats of neat plates, which come to a point in front, with a ridge along the top, and two great lobes on either side. The country was a picture of desolation, it was surveyed by two detachments and was found to be covered with black and porous stones. The entire vegetation which could thrive in this mass of lava consisted of two or three kinds of rugose grass which grew on the rocks, scanty bushes, especially the paper mulberry, the hibiscus, and the mimosa, and some plantains. Close to the landing place is a perpendicular wall constructed of square stones compactly and durably joined in accordance with art rules 
and fitting in a style of durability. Further on, in the center of a well-paved area, a monolith is erected representing a half-naked human figure some twenty feet high and more than five wide, very roughly hewn. The head is badly designed, the eyes, nose, and mouth scarcely indicated, but the ears are very long, as is the fashion in this country, and are better finished than the rest. In the earlier editions of the French translation of Cook's Voyages, Paris, 1878, seven quarto volumes, the height of this statue is given as two feet, evidently by a typographical error. We now correct this mistake, which has been repeated in all subsequent editions. These monuments, which are numerous, do not appear to have been erected or hewn by the race the English found, or this race had degenerated, for these natives paid no respect to the statues, although they treated them with a certain veneration, and objected to anyone's walking on the pavement near them. It was not only the seashore that these enormous sentinels were seen. Between the mountains and the fissures of rocks, others existed, some erect or fallen to earth through some convulsion, others still imperfectly separated from the block from which they were being cut. What sudden catastrophe stopped the works? What do these monoliths represent? To what distant period do these testimonies of the industry of a race long disappeared, or the recollection of whom has perished, seem to point? This problem must remain forever insoluble. Traffic proceeded easily. It was only necessary to repress the marvelous dexterity of the natives in emptying pockets. The few possessions which had been obtained had been very useful, though the want of drinkable water prevented Cook remaining long in Easter Island. He directed his course to the archipelago of the Marquesas of Madonna, which had not been visited since 1595, but his vessel had no sooner been put to sea then he was again attacked by the bilious fever, from which he had suffered so severely. The sufferers from scurvy relapsed, and all who had undertaken long walks across Easter Island had their faces burnt by the sun. On the 7th of April, 1774, Cook sighted the Marquesas group, after seeking them in vain for five consecutive days in the different positions assigned to them by geographers. Anchor was cast at Tauwati, the Santa Cristina of Madonna. The resolution was soon surrounded by pirogues, the foremost of which was full of stones, every man on board having a sling around his hand. However, friendly relations were formed, followed by barter. These natives, says Forrester, are well made, with handsome faces, yellowish or tan complexions, and marks all over their bodies, which gives them an almost black appearance. The valleys of our harbor were filled with trees, and tallied in every particular with the description given by the Spaniards. We saw fire across the forest several times, very far from the shore, and concluded that the country was well populated. The difficulty of procuring food decided Cook upon a hasty departure, but he had time to collect some interesting facts about the people, whom he considered the handsomest in Oceana. These natives appear to surpass all others in the regularity of their features. The resemblance in their speech, however, to that of the Tahitans, appears to point to a common origin. 
The Marquesas are five in number. Magdalena, San Pedro, Dominica, Santa Cristina, and Hood Island, the latter so called after the volunteer who first discovered it. Santa Cristina is divided by a chain of mountains of considerable elevation, to which the hills that rise from the sea lead. Deep, narrow, and fertile valleys, filled with fruit trees and watered by streams of excellent water, intersect this mountain isle. Port Madre de Dios, called by Cook Resolution Harbor, is about the center of the eastern coast of Santa Cristina. It contains two sandy creeks into which two streams flow. End of section 17. Recording by Bob Rose.